Well, I don't know about you, but it's incredible, encouraging to me personally, no matter what may happen in the week or the news or what decision might be made, to be able to say with full conviction, it is well with my soul. Isn't that good? So with that, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 17 in the Old Testament is where we're going to walk through in just a few minutes. 1 Kings 17, if you're visiting with us or relatively new here at Tri-Cities, in January we started a series and we're reading through the Bible together, studying through the Bible together. Many of you are reading through the Bible for the first time ever. There's a reading plan online, you can follow that. It's encouraging for me personally this week with all that transpired and the decision that came down Friday to be reminded of something as I was preparing for this Sunday. Uh, The decision that was made that we were going to walk through the story and walk through the Bible, that that decision was made well over a year ago. And the layout of the Scripture and the layout of what passages we would be dealing with on what Sundays was determined months and months and months ago. But as I was studying through 1 Kings 17 this week and Again, all the different things that are happening in our culture. This became starkly reminded me this week with incredible encouragement of this reality. God is never surprised by anything. God knew exactly where we would be in the scriptures. He knew exactly what would be going on in our culture. He knew exactly what we needed to hear this week from God's word. He always goes ahead of us. And thank heavens, he's not up in heaven wringing his hands, stomping his foot, wondering how he's going to overcome a decision by nine Supreme Court justices. Right. So in 1 Kings chapter 17, as we walk through the word together, let me set up the context so you'll know the situation that was happening then. And you might get some clues of how it incredibly applies to where we're living now. 1 Kings 17 deals with a time that the kingdom of Israel is no longer a united kingdom. We've been walking through for the last few weeks and you've been reading through and we've talked about the reign of Saul and David and then Solomon. They reigned over one nation, the nation of Israel. After Solomon fell into rebellion and after Solomon chased the wind of his own testimony, following his 40 years of sitting on the throne, the nation of Israel had a civil war. And the nation that was once one nation with 12 tribes, states if you will, there was a civil war and it became two nations. There was a northern nation, and this helps you understand your Bible, why the Bible refers to Israel and Judah, and some prophets speak to Israel and some prophets speak to Judah. One of the most important historical events to understand your Bible was this that happened. Let me show this to you on a map. Go ahead and put that map up. The culture that we're now reading, or the current situation, there's now two nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, Samaria is the capital of Israel. And as you read through your Bible and you continue to read through the prophets that you'll get to in a few weeks, some prophets were prophets to the northern kingdom, like Hosea was a prophet to Israel. Some were prophets to Judah, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they speak to what was going on in each nation now, two different nations. But what was consistent 
with both nations as we come to 1 Kings 17 is there was a rapid drift going on in these nations away from the God of their forefathers, away from trust and dependence and worship in the one true God. There was a drift away from the embracing of God's word as truth. And the culture around the people of Israel were clamoring with their voices and the people of God were torn between which way should I go? Which way is true? Is it the way I've been taught and the way of my forefathers? Or is it the way of the prevailing culture around us? And there's this tension as you come to 1 Kings 17. The prevailing worldview of the day, if you will, to help you kind of understand, you're going to read some words here that may not make sense to you, but the predominant worldview of that day was called Baal worship, B-A-A-L worship. The nations around Israel worshipped what they called the god Baal. Now, Baal was nothing more than a demonically inspired figure, but worship of Baal in that day looked something like this. The name Baal meant Lord, owner, or master. It was a direct indictment or directly contrasting what the Bible says, that here, O Israel, there is one Lord, there is one God, and His name is the Lord Jesus. There is one Lord, His name is Yahweh. So Baal worship was in direct contrast. Baal... If you worship Baal, he was believed, and this is very important to believe the God to be to be the God of rain. <laughs> and to be the God of crops and the God of the God of fertility. So in that day, if you had a good bumper harvest, you attributed it to Baal. If there was no harvest, there was no rain, then something was going on with your worship of Baal. So you needed to bring more animal sacrifice. And even at times there was child sacrifice brought to this God Baal. To earn his favor, if you will. Baal in that day was believed to be the god of fertility. So there was gross sexual promiscuity by the culture around the nation of Israel. So you just got to get this. The spirit of the age of this day. The spirit of the age was one that played on the fears of the people who desired prosperity. It appealed to their fleshly lusts, but left the followers only in bondage. And that was the prevailing culture, and that was the predominant culture, Baal worship. Then there's another character maybe you've read about that's very important to understand. He's introduced in 1 Kings 16, and he's the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and his name is Ahab. Maybe you've heard of Ahab. Now, if you don't know anything about Israeli politics in this day, Ahab was a wicked king. In fact, 1 Kings 16, 33 says, He did more to provoke the God of Israel than all the kings before him. He was a wicked dude. And if his wickedness wasn't enough, he did not marry well. (laughs) He married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Anybody ever heard of Jezebel? Ladies, if your husband comes home and gives you a new pet name and calls you Jezebel, that's not a compliment. My little Jezzy. No. Jezebel was perhaps the most wicked woman in the Bible. She grew up, she was not a Jew, she grew up a Canaanite, she grew up worshiping Baal. So when Ahab married Jezebel and brought her into Israel, she brought Baal worship with them. 
And then, to make matters worse, Ahab, at the end of chapter 16, institutionalizes Baal worship by building a temple of Baal to worship Baal in the capital of Samaria. So the culture for the people of God at that day is they were torn. They were trying to play the middle. They were trying to make this mishmash of Baal worship, the predominant culture of the day, what all our friends and everyone around us is saying. But at the same time, I know what our forefathers say, and I know what God has said. And how did the two come together? And they were trying to live with a blended view of both. And then there was the prophet of God, and his name was Elijah. The hero, in a sense. So God raises up this man, Elijah. Now, I want you to know, as we walk through the story and we follow Elijah a little bit, here's what we need to know about Elijah. Number one, Elijah was a true follower of the one true God. Elijah was a truth teller. He was sent by God on a mission, and he had a message into the culture that was now surrounding him. His very name, the name Elijah means the Lord is God. So imagine this. Every time Elijah walks up to somebody in this day and introduces himself, in the the prevailing culture of the day of polytheism and Baal is God, Elijah walked up and said, hello, my name is the Lord is God. In other words, his very name is countercultural. So for you and me, what I want to draw from these scriptures this morning is really an answer to this question that if you watch the news with the lenses of the kingdom, you have to ask this question. How do we, as followers of Christ, live on mission when our message is radically countercultural? Now, get your mind around that for a minute. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe a message, you are redeemed by a message called the gospel that is in and of itself radically countercultural. You know that, right? You believe in a, in a God who says of himself in his word, he created everything from nothing. That's countercultural. And they created men and he created women and they rebelled against him in sin. And as a result, the entire human race lives in rebellion against God if left to themselves. Can I just tell you that's countercultural, right? You're not going to hear that on the talk shows. You believe a message that says God himself took on flesh, came down from heaven, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life we could not live, went to a cross, died on a cross, rose from the dead. Countercultural. And oh, by the way, he's coming again on a white horse to establish his kingdom forever and ever. That's what you believe. If you're a Christian, if you believe the Bible, it's countercultural. But as followers of Christ, we are called and commissioned by God, like Elijah, to take the message of life that is found in Christ into a culture that resists the very message that we're called to proclaim. How do we do that? Let me just say, as a follower of Christ, you've got to feel that tension from time to time. Paul said, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We'll feel that tension that you have a message. You're living in a world that is countercultural to the message. It's countercultural, like Elijah, to your very name. 
You name the name of Jesus Christ. You say the name of Jesus Christ and people get uncomfortable. It is countercultural. So how do we carry out this mission in this culture that God has called us? Introduce Elijah. He's going to help us a little bit. My hope is that you leave here this morning encouraged and challenged to see what's currently going on in our culture through the lenses of Scripture. 1 Kings 17.1, let me read a few verses to you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you four words that describe Elijah, and I think they'll encourage you. I think there'll be a challenge to you to answer the question, how do we live when our message is completely, radically countercultural? 1 Kings 17.1, let's read. The Bible says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, that's the king I told you about earlier, God called Elijah to confront the king, King Ahab. Here's what he says to Ahab. Ahab, as the Lord lives, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I'm going to give you one word that you first see about Elijah, and that's the word conviction. You write that down, conviction. Elijah believed something. Elijah believed something deeply, regardless of what his culture said around him. He says to Ahab, as the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel lives. In other words, he believed there was one true God and his name was the Lord. That's not what the prevailing culture around him believed. He also believed, he said, before whom I stand. Elijah had an awareness that he was standing before a king that with a word could chop off his head. But he realized he was not merely standing before an earthly king. He was always ultimately standing before the king of kings. Therefore, his perspective in the world was, Lord, you are my authority. He was convicted by that awareness. Listen, no matter who he was talking to, no matter what conversation he was in, he was standing before the king of kings. And he knew to him he would give an account. So Ahab, you can do with me what you want. And I know you don't agree with what I believe, but I stand before the king. Listen, Elijah had, he was a man of conviction. Let's take the church face off for just a second and be real honest with each other because when I say the word conviction, a lot of you sit here in your seat and that makes you uncomfortable because here's here's what comes to your mind, the idea of conviction. Christians running around holding up the banners and holding up the signs and holding up the posters and the only message they hold out is what we're against. That's not what I'm talking about when I say conviction. I am talking about a man who knew what God said. He believed some things and saw the culture embracing a world system of lies and and half-truths and holding out to a world the truth to try to bring some sanity to the world around him that was going mad. And he said, I've got the truth. And I hold out the truth. He believed some things. He held some things. He believed that the gospel of of God, the redemptive power of God, that God was redeeming His people and had the power to transform lives. He believed that God was most definitely and faithfully working in the lives of His people and drawing them to Himself. Listen, he believed that God had spoken and given the Word of God to His people. Now listen. He, like us, believed that God gives gives statutes and precepts and instructions and commandments and the blessing and the joy and prosperity and human flourishing are found when we do it God's way. 
Culture cannot thrive. Society cannot thrive when trying to bow a knee to something else and saying, no, Creator, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it our way. And listen, as children of God who believe the Bible, when we see men and women going headlong, trying to do it their own way, I pray that your heart is one that grieves. Grieves. Psalm 119, the psalmist said this, My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Because people do not keep your law. Because living outside of the Word of God, trying to go your own way, regardless of what the culture says, leads you to a path of misery and destruction. And oh, when we watch the news and we see the path of many, the path that we would ourselves be on apart from the grace of God, you better keep that in mind. We grieve because we care. If you hold biblical conviction merely as something to beat people over the head with, that is not the biblical conviction we're talking about. It is a belief that God's way is best. Blessed are the statutes of God. In there is the soul that is put back together. There is joy. There is delight. There is meaning. There is purpose. We believe. That God created human sexuality and marriage And He has a clear plan and will for how it is to be experienced in holiness and joy. And He has designed one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant of commitment and stability and joy and mutual love and sacrifice and devotion and selflessness and joy together. And He has given that as a gift to mankind. And as believers, that should compel us by the Spirit of God, those of us who are married, to pursue your spouse with all your might so that the world can look on your marriage and say, God's way is best. That's what I want. That's what I want. So Elijah was a man of conviction. He believed some things. He was willing to lay his life down for some things. We believe in the institution of marriage, for example. We believe God made human beings in His likeness and He created them male and female, both displaying His glory. Listen. As a father of boys and as a father of a daughter... I really can't even begin to communicate what it does to me when I hear a culture and a society saying to our young people, you will come to a place where you must decide what your gender is. Because I know what the pressures on a 14-year-old man are without trying to determine what gender you've got to be. The weight of that that is unbearable. And you and I hold out, no, God has created them male and female in His likeness, both demonstrating the glory of your Creator. And Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God for His purpose. As He's made you, rejoice in what your Creator has done. Don't rebel against it and think it's best. Because it's never best. You've got that truth. We've got that truth. Russell Moore made a great statement this week, and I'm going to quote this. He said, There are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach 
the sexual revolution's refugees. I love that statement. You understand, as the world goes headlong into a certain worldview and a spirit of the age, there will be victims and there will be refugees who realize this is a dead end. But there will be churches that will not be able to minister to the sexual refugees. There's two kinds. One, a church that has given up on the truth of Scripture, including marriage and sexuality, and it has nothing of value to say to a fallen world. We don't want to be that kind of church. But the other kind of church is equally destructive. A church that screams with outrage at those who disagree and have nothing of love or compassion to say to those who are looking for a new birth. It's the balance we want to strike. There's conviction. Secondly, we see from the life of Elijah, and man, you all are listening way too slow today. <laughs> you say you got four words, huh? We're going to be here to one now. Don't worry. Second word you see from Elijah, verse 2 says, The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. Elijah, as I send you out on mission, I'm going to draw you to myself. Verse 4, It shall be that you will drink of the brook that I have commanded, and the ravens will provide for you there. Remember, it's the season of drought. At this point, it's probably been about four or six months, something like that, with no rain. The streams are drying up. Crops are drying up. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. What's the point? I'll give you a second word. If we're going to live on mission in a world that is countercultural to our message, the word is communion. You've got to walk with Christ. Here's Elijah who was withdrawn by Christ to sit by the brook Cherith and his needs were bread and water. God supernaturally provided for his needs in a time of drought by ravens. You say, what's that have to do with anything? You may know what a raven is. A raven is a scavenger. Ravens take food from people. They don't bring food to people unless the hand of God is on them. And God supernaturally provided for the physical needs of His servant as a picture to you and me. When we meet with God and we draw close to Him, He supernaturally meets our soul needs so that we can go out and minister in a world that is countercultural. It's very hard for us to dispense grace to the culture around us if we are not daily partaking of His grace. It's very hard for us to maintain the balance between conviction and compassion in the world around us because depending on your makeup, when we're not walking with Christ and our mind is not saturated with His Word, we will drift towards one of two extremes in this culture. You will become a militant and all you want to do is scream at the culture and telling them how sinful they are. That's not the answer. Or you, if you're a more passive person, you will begin to recoil into your cave and really hope everything works out and I'm just going to try to play the middle not say much about it. And you're... No help to anybody. God calls us to biblical conviction, displaying Jesus-like compassion to our culture around us. How do we do that? You walk with Christ. 
And you sit by the brook Cherith in the morning and you say, God, give me the word from heaven. Give me your word and feed my soul and let me see my friends and my neighbors and the mission you've given me from your eyes and walk by your strength. That's what Elijah did. And then God calls Elijah to something else. It gets really good here. 1 Kings 17 is where we were. On over in verse 8, he says this, The word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go to Zarephath. Elijah, you're going to go somewhere. I'm going to take you from where you are by the brook Cherith. I'm going to take you to the city of Zarephath, verse 8, which belongs to Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, and stay there. And behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, what's the big deal about this? Well, you may not know your geography of Israel, but God took Elijah from where he was and says, I'm going to send you across the nation to the other side to the country of Sidon, not in Israel. The country of Sidon, particularly the area, this little town of Zarephath, was home to a very famous person in your Bible named Jezebel. Elijah, instead of you withdrawing from the culture that's around you, I'm going to take you and plant you right in the middle of it. It's ground zero of Baal worship. Why? Watch this. Because God wanted to teach Elijah and wanted to teach us true biblical compassion. He said, I don't get it. Stay with me. Watch this. Of all the people he could send Elijah to, he sent Elijah to a widow. Verse 10, he says, So he rose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks. What's that all about? And he called to her and he said, please give me a little water in the jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a little piece of bread in your hand. So that sounds kind of selfish. Well, there's a reason. But she said to him, as the Lord your God lives, O man of God. She had heard of Elijah, evidently. I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little bit in the jar. And I'm gathering a few sticks. Now listen to this. I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son our last meal, if you will, that we may eat it and die. Stop right there. The widow at Zarephath that Elijah was sent to had grown up right in the center of Baal worship. She had been taught the spirit of the day. She had been taught, here's how you live. Apart from the one true God, you follow Baal. And here's here's how it's going to turn out in your life. But Elijah shows up And the God called Baal was helpless even to provide enough rain in the drought for this poor little widow to even have any bread. Watch this. And what this widow has discovered is the system in which she's bought into will not give what it promised. And you could describe, as Russell Moore did this week, I'm going to read you that statement again. You could describe the widow at Zarephath as a refugee of her culture. She bought into what the culture was saying. She pursued the prevailing thought of the day. And it gave her nothing. And now she winds up as a refugee. Listen, and she's dying for someone to tell her the truth. And Elijah develops deep compassion for this woman 
we are called to have compassion on those around us who have bought into the lie of the culture and are wrestling with their own sin and their own fleshly lust, whatever they may look like, just like we wrestle with our own sin and our own fleshly lust, and we're to have compassion. What did it look like in Elijah's life? Verse 13, then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first to bring it out to me. Well, that's a selfish dude. You don't have any bread, you're going to bring some to me? Make sure you feed me first. Why do you do that? Keep reading. Because I want to introduce you, widow to Zarephath, to someone who always keeps their promises. He says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Let me introduce you to something else, widow of Zarephath. If you place your confidence and faith in the one true God, He will keep His promises, and your bowl will not be exhausted. God will take care of you. He is the one true God. Now watch this. So here was a woman who had bought into all the lies of the culture, and now she's dying for someone to tell her the truth. Listen, wherever God places you on mission, I pray that you do not posture yourself in such a way that you are so opposed that when God brings out the refugees of the current world system, we, the church, are not there to provide the answers and truth and compassion. You see that? Elijah's heart breaks for this woman. He has a compassion for her. It keeps on going. Don't stop there. In that day, Baal was believed to raise the dead. It was believed if someone was sick or someone died, Baal could raise the dead. 1 Kings 17, 17. Elijah is still there. He stays there for three years. It says, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. Her son got sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Translation, he's dead. He's really dead. And I can imagine the popular thought of that day was, well, just call on Baal. He can do something here. Maybe he can raise your son. So I imagine her neighbors were saying, you better call on Baal. You better make sacrifices. You better do something to no avail. Now watch this. Verse 20 says, And he called on the Lord and said, O Lord my God, Elijah, you also have brought calamity on this woman with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? So Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord his God and said, O Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Here's the point for you and me in light of what we're saying this morning. Elijah was a life-giving source to this refugee of the culture to the point that he is literally willing to lay out his life to care for and serve a family that was before that worshipers of Baal and had gone the other way. How are you going to minister to those around you that are struggling with their sexuality? I'm not saying those that have completely given themselves over and they are the militant type. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being honest enough as the people of God that as we 
Maybe your particular struggle with sin is not that of homosexuality or some other. You just pick one. We all have them. But are we ready to the place to say we are going to deal with compassion and demonstrate the compassion of Christ to those refugees of this culture? David Platt said we explore the cultural issues not with self-righteous complacency, Not that we are content to wring our hands with pious concern, but with a self-sacrificing commitment to be whatever God calls us to be, do whatever He calls us to do, give whatever He compels us to give, and watch this, serve whomever He calls us to serve. And for many of you, that might be someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction. And it might be that you're in a life group and you're sharing about your struggle with lust and you're struggling with your sharing with your struggle with materialism and someone says I'm struggling watch this I'm a believer but I'm struggling with this thing called same sex attraction can you help me and the tendency would be to clear your throat and be very uncomfortable and say let's close in prayer and figure this one out and call Pastor Mike and see what we're going to do Pray that we show the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're able to give the grace that we have received to those that are struggling in our culture and realize the voices of the culture never give what they promise to give. It's our role. Christ has called us to that. Am I willing to even be labeled by some a friend of sinners? You say, I don't want to be called that. Jesus was called that. You say, that's a tough balance to strike. It sure is. You say, how do we strike the balance? The only way I know is what I said earlier. You've got to abide in Christ and be in His Word and walk with God and walk in the Spirit. Because of the spirit of the day that we live in, things are confusing. Things are unclear. That's the enemy's goal. He is the God of confusion. And clarity only comes from God's Word. So how do we live on mission as God has called us when our message is so countercultural? Conviction, communion, compassion of the biblical sort. And fourth word, and I'm finished. I want you to turn with me, 1 Kings 18, and look there, and we'll read a couple verses and we'll be done. The drought has now been going on for three and a half years. <clears throat> Times in Israel are very hard. God now calls Elijah to go back to Ahab, the king. Ahab has been searching high and low to find Elijah because he wants to kill him. Elijah shows up, confronts Ahab, and it comes to a point where things have come to a head in in Israel that you can no longer ride the fence anymore. Something's got to break. Something's got to give. So verse 20 of chapter 18, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets, the prophets of Baal, together at Mount Carmel. So we're going to have a meeting up on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal are going to come and Elijah is going to come. So there's this meeting up on the mountain. Maybe you've heard about this before. And Elijah says to the nation of Israel, to the people of God, he says, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. The word hesitate means to limp along between two twigs. It is the idea of what the people of God were trying to do. Was trying to play the middle and play both sides. And Elijah says, you can't do that. I want you to know that we've come to a day in the nation that we live in, in America, that cultural Christianity will not cut it anymore. You say, I don't know what you mean by that. Well, the fourth thing we see in Elijah was the word courage. We're going to live on mission and carry out the mission God's given us in this culture. We're going to have to have courage. You say, I, Okay, help me with that. Let me read you a few verses. Peter said this. He said, we are strangers and aliens just passing through this world. Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly, we eagerly wait for a Savior from there. Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. For most of us who have been brought up as American Christians, listen to me, those verses mean very little to us. You know why? Take me, for example, for most of my 43 years walking with Christ, about 20 years, it's been relatively, watch this, easy to name the name of Christ in America. It's been easy to play the cultural Christian card. I go to church on Sunday morning, I sing the songs, I go, I name Jesus, I pray over my meals, I do some things, and I, and I name the name of Christ, it doesn't really bother anybody. Let me tell you something, you now live in a culture that if you name the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ lives inside of you, you are a true child of God. The day is coming, and I'd say it's almost here, probably here now, it is going to cost you something. That's why they're must be courage among the people of God to say, hey, it's okay. It's okay if I don't feel comfortable in America anymore as a Christian because, listen, it's not my home. Peter said to the early church, you're passing through like aliens and strangers because they were persecuted for the name of the name of Christ. They knew nothing of religious liberty in their day. For them to name the name of Christ, it cost them everything. And let me tell you something. In the early church, there were not the cultural Christians that would name the name of Jesus if it wasn't real. They wouldn't do it just because it was the cool thing to do because to name the name of Jesus in that day might cost you your life. And you are not going to name the name of Jesus then or now if it's not genuine and the real thing. So there's a sifting. There's a purging of the church that's going on now, that's going to continue. And let me just say as one of your pastors, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Courage. There was a battle that took place, or not a battle, but a showdown, if you will, up on Mount Carmel. Elijah told the prophets of Baal to build their altar, and he built his altar. And he said, all right, prophets of Baal, call on Baal. Call on him. See if he consumes this sacrifice that we've laid out here. From morning to night, the prophets of Baal called out on Baal, and there was nothing. Nothing. And then you come to verse 38. I'll read this, and we'll be finished. I know our time is up. You say, Pastor Mike, our time was up about 10 minutes ago. I got it. We're almost done. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering 
and the wood of the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. There was this dramatic demonstration from God. He received the offering that was laid before Him. He attested that there is one God. And you say, well, Pastor Mike, if God would give some radical display like that today, I would have all the courage in the world. Ready? You know where your courage comes from and my courage comes from? 2,000 years ago, on a hill in Jerusalem, with the Roman centurion standing around a cross, there was a true burnt offering and a sacrifice nailed to a tree. And that sacrifice was fully accepted by God and received into heaven and three days later went back in to the grave, if you will, so to speak, and rose from the dead triumphantly to display He is the accepted sacrifice. He is the only sin bearer. He rose from the dead to demonstrate I have victory and my victory is forever. And child of God, listen, we are not striving for victory in this age. We are living from a victory already won in Christ. And we are longing for King Jesus to return to take us to our true home forever and ever. But in the meantime, we will live as strangers and aliens with conviction from the Word of God and holding out the compassion of Jesus in us for a broken, desperate world that is longing for some sense to the confusion we live in. You are the life givers. Jesus lives inside of you. I'm going to ask David to come on up and just begin to play. And I'm going to ask you for a minute to do something. I want you just to bow your heads right there where you're seated for a moment. I don't know what God has pressed on your heart this morning through His Word. It's been quite a week in our country, I understand that. But I hope this morning God has spoken to you from His Word that we, as the people of God are not beaten. <laughs> Jesus is victorious and with resurrection power He lives inside of us. And because of that we can be people of deep conviction. We believe something. We believe something. And it is life transforming. We, we, we commune with the living God. He invites us to the brook Cherith to be nourished and fed by His Spirit and His Word. God, make us people of compassion, true compassion. Not compromise, but true compassion. Lord, give us courage. Victory is already won in Christ. No decision, no legislation can ever put Jesus back in the tomb. He is triumphant. So what I'm going to ask you to do is just kind of remain in a spirit of prayer and worship and whatever the Lord calls or lays on your heart. David's going to sing some truths over us and then I'll invite you to join in as we sing some incredible truth from God's Word.